0: The Peter Schiff Show. So, what I've decided to do is something that I I was going to do eventually anyway. I was going to be building a studio uh, here in Puerto Rico uh, on the grounds of my home where I was going to be able to do my podcasts. And I was going to do uh, the the YouTube videos live from my studio. I'm going to have a set. You know, it's going to be really good equipment. Um, But who knows when I'm going to be able to get that done now. I have no idea when I'm going to get a construction crew over here. I mean, things take long enough in Puerto Rico uh, when there's no coronavirus. So who knows uh, how long it's going to take for me to actually uh, construct a studio. It was going to be a standalone structure on the property. Uh, But for now, I'm just going to kind of do a makeshift studio in my home office. Uh, I'll order some equipment, you know, better camera, something like that, um, to try to do it a little bit better. But here's what my plan is going forward is the way I want to do my podcasts is I'm going to do them live on YouTube first. So I'll be able to get them done earlier in the day. I mean, most of the time, maybe I'll try to do it after the market closes, maybe four or four thirty ish. Usually things slow down for me about that time. Uh, maybe for other people who are trading the market who also want to listen to what I have to say, you know once the market in the US closes. And I know I have a much bigger audience than just the United States, but that's my largest uh, audience. So I think after the market closes, people things calm down and people can watch it live. Of course, anybody can watch it later. You know, the YouTube video will be there, uh, so you don't have to watch it live. You can uh, watch it uh, later in the day at your leisure. But it's going to be a little bit more impromptu. It's going to include the video. Uh, Then what we're going to do is we're going to clean it up a bit. We're going to uh, take the sound from the live uh, YouTube uh, stream and then create the podcast. And so I'll do the YouTube first, and then... It'll be cleaned up, edited out a little bit, and then later on posted to Shift Radio so that people can listen to a much cleaner cut on the podcast. So for people who, uh, you know, want to see it raw, want to see it live, want to see my face, uh, just, you know, come to YouTube. And I did notice, too, that the YouTube live streams that I did got a lot of views. And so maybe by, you know, being live on YouTube, and uh, also by, um, you know, having the video, maybe I'll get a bigger uh, YouTube audience. You know, we just went over 300,000 subscribers. So thanks to everybody who who subscribed. You know, it took me 11 years to get up to 300,000 subscribers. Hopefully it doesn't take me another 11 uh, to get my next 300. I really want to get the subscribers up to a million. So maybe doing uh, the video again uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll do that, get more people to uh, to watch on YouTube. But it's also a reason to not only you know watch the YouTube, but then later on to listen to the podcast because it's not going to be identical. I mean, right now, the content on the video and the podcast are pretty much the exact same thing. I just record it and then we put it on YouTube and we put it on a uh, shift radio. But now what's on YouTube will be different. I mean, there'll be more on YouTube. It'll just be quicker and cleaner, so... You can listen to it again, maybe to get some of the highlights of what you saw. Oh, <laughs> I can see people, you know, I'm not taking questions. So I, you know, I'm this is not like the live chats where I'm gonna do QA. I don't have time. I mean, I will do those again. I see people are asking me questions, but yeah, I can't do three, four hours. So this is just gonna be more me talking. I can see you guys chatting up in the in the screen. Uh maybe I'll react to something, uh, maybe not. But this, you know, I'll, I'll do another one of those again. But right now, the format's just going to be like the podcast. I'm going to talk and say what's on my mind regarding what, what what happens, you know, in the markets today or in the economy, the news. And, you know, there's so much news. I mean, it's really uh, trying to figure out what not to talk about as opposed to what to talk about. But uh, the first thing I want to mention today is the the special video that I did yesterday uh, you know, we had a lot of fun with that over the weekend. You know, somebody and I—I I forget the guy's name. I, I you know, I'll—I'll I'll mention it the next time because I wanted to just thank him for sending me the video. But somebody actually sent me an email with that old Cudlow show, just saying, "Hey, déjà vu. You know, remember this show?" And he sends me a clip to a YouTube uh, of uh, one of my appearance on Cudlow and Company from actually happened to be the very day, the very day that the Fed cut rates to zero for the first time back in 2008. And uh, so it was me on that show. And I remember at that time, you know, Larry Kudlow, one day he actually called me directly just to tell me how much he appreciated me coming on his show. He was like, you know, Peter, you're the only one that is speaking out for us, you know, meaning him, me, because Larry Kudlow, I know, I mean, I used to kid Kudlow because when I first started going on his shows, uh, you know he was all you know optimistic you know this the greatest economy the, the, you know the, the story never told the Goldilocks economy but when the Fed initially reacted by slashing rates and doing QE, cudlow did not like it he was very much in my camp very much against what the Fed was doing so much so that he personally thanked me for coming on his show and he wanted to know if I can come on more often if I had the time because he wanted somebody, to actually articulate what he believed. And I was doing that. I was the only one doing that. And and so if I when I saw this uh, this clip again, it really made me think that a lot of people don't realize this, because if you watch that video, you'll notice that Cudlow really agrees with me. I mean, he's not coming right out and say, yeah, I agree with Peter. But if you watch the clip, you'll see that that's exactly what he's doing. I mean, he knows I'm speaking for him, I'm speaking for all the people who believe in sound money, like Cudlow did at one time. And he probably still does, you know, deep down in his heart. But he knew that the Fed was making a mistake, what they were doing. And the interesting thing about this video, if you go back and and, uh, and watch it, is that all the guys from the Fed, like Wayne Angel and Rob McTier, these are former Fed guys. And they were talking about how Ben Bernanke is going to not be a Greenspan, right? He's not going to leave rates too low. He's not going to leave the ease on. That he's going to be very quick to pull back the liquidity, right? That this is only temporary. And I'm out there saying, how do you know that? There's no way. And Kudlow and Santelli are agreeing with me that we were opening up a Pandora's box. Yet all the mainstream Fed guys, including Steve Leisman, who was there, you know, the the, uh, senior economics reporter at CNBC back then, You know, we all look a little longer, younger, uh, you know, back in uh, 2008. But these guys are like, don't worry, this is temporary. It's 12 years later. We're at zero again. We're doing QE infinity. How was it temporary? See, what I was worried about, what Cutlow was worried about, what Rick Santelli was worried about in 08, was the Fed was going down a road from which there was no coming back. See, what I was saying back then is, look, if the Federal Reserve – can't raise rates now. How are they going to do it later once they they make sure everybody has more debt? That is the problem. You can't deliberately get everybody addicted to a drug and then think you could just take away the drug, especially when you've got them addicted in the first place. So Cudlow knew that. So you watch this, you could tell. And Cudlow's talking about Argentina. He brought up Argentina. I didn't. I just followed up on Cudlow's reference that hey, we were becoming the next Argentina. Well, if Cudlow was worried about us becoming the next Argentina. Back then, what what is he worried about now? I mean, what we're doing now makes what Bernanke did, he looks like Paul Volcker compared to what Powell is doing now. This is so off the charts reckless. But again, it all got started back then. If we had listened to me, if the policymakers had listened to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. But of course, had they listened to me, we wouldn't have even had the, the bubble that popped in 2008 because I was warning about that one too. So what happened was when I saw it, I was just going to put it up there, but I was going to have an introduction, you know, to tell people, look, this is 12 years ago. And to give a little backstory to the video before I showed it. And then what happened is uh, Paul Moresca, who, who works with me here, said, hey, well, why don't we just, uh, you know, have the credits scroll like Star Wars? You know, we have that big scroll. And then one thing led to another, and then we just kept getting carried away and making the whole thing more and more like Star Wars, uh, and, and and so it just became a very fun thing to do on a on a quarantine weekend here in Puerto Rico. And so the result is the uh, the video that we put out on Monday. So you know I had a lot of fun making it. I think it's uh, the, you know the beginning and the end. I think that part is very funny uh, if you read it. Uh, but th- the important part is the actual ten minute. Cudlow uh, I mean I had a lot of time on, on on that particular episode and we really hashed this out and, and you could see who was right and who was wrong that was the real point of it and that you know this is just happening all over again except now I'm not on CNBC anymore to sound the alarm to talk about how crazy it is Cudlow's not there either. he's part of the administration now advocating the very policies that he's personally called me on the phone, to make sure I can come on his show to be the voice of reason, right, in a chorus of insanity. And Cudlow knew it, right? He knew it then. I'm sure he knows it now. Uh, but you know, also another thing I wanted to point out too: somebody put together a a YouTube video called "Peter Schiff Was Right," the Scott Nations uh, edition. And I watched it. It's like 40 minutes, so it's really not cut down. It's some of these uh, interviews I was doing on Futures Now. And if you watch them. I got a lot of airtime on futures now because it wasn't actually CNBC TV. It was like their, their website. And so they allowed me on the website for a while and there I got a lot more airtime. And so that's probably some of the best stuff that has ever been said on CNBC. I mean, the most accurate uh, information that has ever been presented to the CNBC audience was presented by me on, on these clips. And so It's me and Scott Nations, because Scott Nations was like, he would just criticize me. He would just interrupt me, and he would accuse me of just, you know, promoting and selling gold and lying. And I thought what was really funny about it is at the end of this clip, where I am out there warning about the Federal Reserve, talking about how the Federal Reserve is inflating bubbles, uh, and and Scott Nations is making fun of me. Peter Schiff, you were wrong. You said there would be QE4, and there hasn't been a QE4. Of course, now there's QE4, 5, 6, infinity, whatever. But I kept saying, Scott, I didn't say when it was going to start. I just know it's coming. He just kept yelling at me and interrupting me because I was wrong, 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 right? And he would talk about everything was great and the Fed was great and all this stuff. Then at the end of that 45-minute episode of me warning about the Fed and him chastising me for warning about it, right, and basically being a defender and a cheerleader for the Fed, he just did an interview on television and he had the gall. Scott Nations came out and said, you know, this is all caused by the Fed. They've been inflating these bubbles. They did it. They kept interest rates too low for too long. And you know what? I don't know of anybody who has been a bigger critic of the Federal Reserve over the years than me, meaning him, Scott Nations, that he doesn't know of anybody who's been a bigger critic of the Fed than him. I mean, what about me? He doesn't know about me. I mean, I'm the biggest critic he knows, and he knows I exist because he criticized me for criticizing the Fed. So now not only is this guy lying and pretending that he was the biggest critic of the Fed and their cheap money policies, but he claims he doesn't know anybody else who was a bigger critic than him when he knows me. I mean the whole thing is ridiculous. Like Scott Nations went to sleep one night as Scott Nations and he woke up and he thought he was Peter Schiff. So I thought that was very interesting. It's not like Scott's ever reached out to me and said, "Oh Peter, I guess I guess you were right." I guess I was wrong, right, all those years where I told you you didn't know what you're talking about and you were wrong and, you know, you were wrong for predicting QE4. You know, I did. You know, and, you know, of course, in this one uh, uh, cut, they're jumping all over me because they say, Peter Schiff said goal would be at $5,000 in two years. You know, they kind of blindsided me by that because, you know, I don't know, I, know, I, I go on television, I don't remember what I say, but I actually found the clip that they were referring to where they said Peter Schiff said goal would be at 5,000 in two years. And saving for an emergency fund because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. And I didn't say two years. They asked me because I said gold's going to 5000 And those guys asked me, well, when? And I said, oh, a few years. A few years. I didn't say two. I said a few. So, yes, a few is three maybe. I mean, there's no set definition for a few. But, yes. Was my five thousand gold call premature? Yes, it was premature. But gold's still going to get to five thousand. But they were just hammering all over me because I said it would go to five thousand and it wasn't there yet. As if like nobody had ever come on CNBC and said a stock is going to go to a certain price and then it went down instead of going up. I mean, nobody is perfect, you know, on 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 their timing. Yet I'm the only one that was held to this standard of perfection because the price of gold still hadn't reached my target. Well, you know what? It's going to reach my target. I think it's interesting if you look at these interviews, you can see the price of gold scrolling by at 1100. And, you know, despite the fact that it was down what 45 50 bucks today. I mean, we're still just below 1600. So, we're still 40% higher now than it was then. And all they could do is, you know, beat me up about recommending gold. I mean, think about all the stocks that are down a lot more than the price of gold. There are plenty of stocks that people have bought, listen to the CNBC, that have gone down much more than the price of gold. Yet they never criticize the people who recommend those stocks, but yes, they criticize the hell out of me for recommending gold. In fact, they criticize you so much that they banned me uh, from being on uh, on their airways. I haven't been on in two or three years. I'm, I'm sure I'll never be on again, given the fact that I've now become so critical. So talk about burning bridges, although I think the bridge might have been blown up before I tried to light fire to it. But again, if you watch this, this new video, you know, that's probably some of the best television that CNBC ever had. Of course, they'll never have anything better because I'm not on anymore. Um, But yeah, check it out. We got over 80,000 views on the one that we did. uh, And it's called... um, Currency wars, the rise of hyperinflation. And, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, you know, watch that a couple of times, the beginning and the end. There's so many different Star Wars references that I incorporated into my language. Uh, and, and and actually, the beginning, is it's exactly the same. I mean, you can go on the Internet and see how Star Wars uh, Episode Four, you know, A New Hope, how that begins. And it, you, you see, it's just, you know, we, we pretty much copied it uh, entirely. You know, there are a lot of people out there that are saying, you know, oh, it's going to get taken down because of the copyrights. Look, you're allowed to do that. I just can't monetize the video. Not that I really care too much about the monetization. So Disney's going to get the money. So when you watch it, you know, YouTube makes a little money. They're going to pay Disney. And I figure, you know, Disney probably needs the money more than I do right now anyway. So I'm happy to help uh, by, you know, by uh, sending some, uh, some royalty money over to Disney uh, for using their, uh, their, their content. But anyway, I got a lot of stuff I want to talk about today in this podcast. First of all, you know, the markets have closed, right? The Dow is down a little over 400 points today. This is the end of the quarter. And um, this is the worst quarter that the Dow has had since uh, 1987, that fourth quarter, which included the stock market crash of 1987. So we didn't have a quarter this bad at all during the 2008 crisis, right? This is worse than that. And think about this. The stock market was hit so hard, despite everything the Federal Reserve did to stop it from going down. I mean, imagine where the U.S. stock market would be right now had the Fed not done anything, right? Had the Fed not tried its best to save the market, where would the market be? Now, the fact of the matter is, we would be better off had the Fed done nothing. I mean, the Fed's help is actually hurting, right? That's the problem. They've helped so much in the past. That's why we're hurting so much now. They need to let the market go down. It's because they didn't let it go down more the last time and the time before that and the time before that that we're in so much trouble now. But despite much more support, I mean, the amount of quantitative easing, right, the amount of stimulus that we've already had so quickly dwarfs, dwarfs by an order of magnitude. What happened in, in in 2008 and that's why i've been saying i mean even if it wasn't the coronavirus right i mean obviously this makes it worse right i mean i didn't i didn't have this built into my forecast right i didn't foresee a pandemic but i knew something was going to happen and even if nothing happened you know the bubble was going to deflate on its own but i've always said that qe4 would be bigger than one two and three combined because i understood and recognized how how big the bubble was because the bigger the bubble the bigger the pop and then the more air it takes to try to blow it back up again so i knew the next time they tried it they would have to throw the kitchen sink that it would have to be the biggest round of qe yet and you know they've surpassed my expectations with this uh with this qe infinity but despite that we've had this uh, really rough quarter in in the stock market but it's going to get a lot rougher particularly in the us economy because ultimately it's not only investors who are going to suffer more because of what the Fed is doing, but the whole economy is going to suffer. Yes, the losses nominally won't be as great, but in real terms, adjusted for inflation. That's why that video is the rise of hyperinflation. You know, Because as I said, hyperinflation used to be the worst case scenario that I was optimistic that we would avoid, but I knew it was a possibility. But now I think it's more of the most likely outcome. It doesn't seem that it's a long shot. It seems that Avoiding hyperinflation is a long shot. So that doesn't mean that hyperinflation is guaranteed. I think there's still time uh, to avert that fate. But we're running out of time. And and, and right now, nothing that we're doing leads me to believe that we're going to make those choices. So it's full full speed ahead now, uh, right to hyperinflation city. And that's going to be the worst possible outcome for the economy and for the markets. But I made a little list here on my laptop of some of the things I want to talk about on today's uh, podcast oh first of all the ink is barely dry right on the 800 plus page stimulus bailout bill whatever you're going to call that right and of course how many people in congress could have possibly read an 800 page bill in the amount of time between the time they finished writing it and the time they voted on it i mean nobody could have possibly read this yet they all voted for it anyway I mean, remember Nancy Pelosi, we got to pass the bill to see what's in it. Well, that's what they did. They all closed their eyes, held their nose, and they passed an 800-page bill. Who the hell knows what's buried in those pages, right? What kind of deal did we make with the devil here to get this $2.2 trillion boondoggle uh, signed by the president? So that's number one. So the ink isn't even dry on that one, and they're already queuing up another one, right? And one of the reasons they say they need another one is because uh, they need more money to bail out the states, right? More money for the individual states. Even though they got included in this bailout, they need more, right? Because the states are really in a lot of trouble. So now they need more bailout money for the state governments, which is a huge, huge mistake, right? They're going to make it, but it's a huge mistake. Look, not all states need a bailout. There are states that have been running budget surpluses, all right, that have plenty of uh, money in their rainy day funds. But then there are other states that have no rainy day funds that have been borrowing like crazy while the sun was shining. In fact, there are a lot of states that were going to go bankrupt anyway. Municipalities that were going to go broke. It was only a matter of time. The coronavirus is almost like a get out of jail free card for these states because now nobody is going to oppose these bailouts because they can say, well, it wasn't our fault. I mean, it's the coronavirus, right? We need this money. And nobody is going to deny them the money. See, had some of these states gone bankrupt under ordinary circumstances, it would have been easier to resist the moral hazard of bailing them out and making them deal with it themselves. But nobody has the guts to do that now. So now everybody can throw all their problems, right? Just like CEOs, whenever there's a problem, they'll find this new thing to blame it on. Why, You know, throw, throw out everything, right? Uh, whenever there's a problem, get all the bad news out of the way. Well, now all the states are doing all this, right? They're, they're 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 gonna they're gonna try to get bailed out when they needed a bailout anyway. But the other problem is the moral hazard. You see, once we bail out all the states that were reckless and irresponsible, then we show not only those states, but the states that were prudent that there is no benefit to being prudent. You don't you don't reap any reward. Uh, For having a balanced budget, because there's no negative consequences to living in the moment and being extravagant. If all the states and municipalities that just bought votes by running big deficits, if they all get bailed out, if their residents are not, you know, don't have to suffer any negative consequences for all that profligacy of the past, then all the states that were prudent, they feel like a bunch of idiots. I mean, what the hell were we doing? Why didn't we run deficits? Why didn't we promise more than we collected in taxes? So what is going to happen now because of this massive uh, state and maybe municipal bailout is that in the future, to the extent the government has any money to bail anybody out, which it probably won't, but in the future, the government just guarantees that the next time the states need a bailout, it's going to be more expensive because the states that were extravagant are now going to be even more extravagant because they'll expect another bailout. And the states that were prudent, well, they'll, they're going to become extravagant too because we've taken away all of the adverse consequences for being prudent as well as all of the benefits for being prudent. So everybody is reckless. It's moral hazard. It's it's amazing. It's such a simple concept. But you you can't understand that concept if you're going to be in government. right? They have to make sure that you have totally no familiarity with the, with, with the concept of moral hazard. Because if you know anything about it, then it precludes all these bills. So you have to be completely ignorant of something really basic before you can serve in government. And another thing, too, part of that, I was watching today, uh, uh, Andrew Cuomo, the uh, governor of New York, who a lot of people think maybe is going to replace sleepy Joe Biden at the top of the Democratic ticket. I mean, it's a long shot, but there are people that are betting that on predicted. Uh, and a lot of people would rather have uh, 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 Cuomo because at least, you know, he's not senile. Uh, and so, uh, you know, he, you know he, he may actually be a more formidable. candidate although again i think uh uh the economy is a wreck so that, that 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 should favor biden but cuomo today right said that i think what he's thinking about doing in new york is basically passing some kind of law that says that tenants have their rents canceled for three months I mean, not just, you know, you don't have to pay and you pay it later. You just, it's outright canceled, right? You don't have to pay the rent at all. It's forgiven. You get three months of rent-free living, right? Because of the coronavirus. Now, he says, oh, okay, well, what about the landlords? Okay, well, we'll forgive three months of their uh, mortgage payments, right? So that, I mean, I, I'm you know, so that's three months that you never have to pay. It's not that you have to make it up or the balance gets added to your loan balance. No, it's, you just don't have to pay so we forgive the tenants their rent and we forgive the landlords their mortgages. Okay, well, what about the banks, right? What about the lender? Well, he's back, be- well, we'll let the Federal Reserve bail them out. So in other words, he's not even president yet. He's already passed the buck. He wants to forgive the rents, forgive the mortgages, and then let the Fed bail out the lending institutions uh, by, by printing more money. And of course, I think it's convenient that he didn't mention anything about the property taxes that the landlords would pay to the state government. He didn't mention forgiving that, Right, he just mentioned forgiving uh, uh, the money that the, that the private sector is getting, and then hoping that the federal government will, will will add in the bailout by somehow rescuing the banks. But he's not, you know, denying any revenue to to the state treasury. But look, apart from being illegal, I mean, how could you just cancel contracts and say people don't have to pay their rent? And just because you don't have to pay your mortgage, I mean, most people, if you're a landlord. Your rent is more than your mortgage. I mean, you know, if you want positive cash flow, so you're losing that. Now, you know, what about the utility bills? Maybe that the, that they might have to pay, or other 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 factors like property taxes. But what about the landlord that doesn't have a mortgage? What if you got somebody maybe who's retired, has some rental rental units, and they live off their rental income? What happens to them? They don't have a mortgage now. They don't have any rent. You know that this whole thing is ridiculous. That you could just unilaterally look. I don't mind the private sector on their own without government coercion, individual landlords and tenants and banks making arrangements with one another. But when you have the government just coming down and canceling and saying, you don't have to pay your rent, you don't have to pay your mortgage. And here's the bigger problem. A lot of people, right, a lot of people who are lower to moderate income people, people that maybe are making $15, $20 an hour, you know, something like that. A lot of these people right now, they're going to be making more money not working than they were making when they were working. Again, because of this bill, right, you get this four months of emergency uh, unemployment money where the government gives you an extra $600 a week on top of whatever you get in unemployment. So let's say somebody was earning $700 a week in their job and now they're on unemployment and the unemployment is $300 a week, right? I'm not really sure what the benefits are, but let's say you get $300 a week. Well, now you get an extra $600 from the government. Now you're at $900 a week. You're getting paid nine hundred a week not to work. You were only getting set, paid seven hundred a week to work. Plus, you're saving all the money because you don't have to commute back and forth to work. And you're probably saving on taxes. You're not paying your payroll tax anymore, right? You're not paying the having the social security tax taken out of your pay. So people's after tax income now is much higher than when they were actually working for a living. And now, on top of that, they don't have to pay any rent, so they don't have to work. They don't have to pay rent, and they have all this money coming in from the government. I mean, let the good times roll. I mean, who's talking about people sacrificing right now when a lot of people are living better than they've ever lived? They have a big vacation, they don't have to go to work, they don't have to pay their rent. The problem is, once the politicians give it to you, how are they gonna take it away after four months of you know extended benefits? After three months of not paying your rent, what if you're still unemployed? Oh, well, we got to extend it, right? This is the government is taking advantage of this. They're gonna have this huge army of people getting paid by the government. This is a disaster. This is not the coronavirus doing this. This is the government doing this. And you know what's also going to be happening? And I'm reading about this, you know, some of the workers in the so-called essential businesses, right? The ones that the government deems essential, right? So they're not having those guys go home. They're still at work. These guys are getting mad. They're getting frustrated, right? Because they're out working, busting their butts while a lot of other people are at home making more money not working than they're making working, I mean, can you imagine the guys that are working in the supermarkets or delivery guys, right? They, they they want higher pay now. In fact, they want hazard pay because now they're risking the virus, right? They're risking getting coronavirus. They want time and a half. They want double time. I mean, I can see this big movement of a lot of these workers. They, they want a piece of the gravy train themselves. They want to take a vacation at home and watch Netflix all day and, you know, and just eat, you know, junk food that they're ordering online, right? Why can't they do that? No, no, they're actually going to work just like it's normal. And they're paying the taxes and and and, and all that. And so I think that we're going to have to start paying the people who are actually working even more money to work. Otherwise, they're not going to do it. Which means that the business owners that are operating these essential businesses now, what are they going to do? They're going to have to raise prices, right? So prices, that's another reason that prices are going to go up because it's going to be so hard to pay somebody to actually work when the government has made it so lucrative not to work, right? In order to get somebody to actually work and to risk, you know, contagion with the virus now and actually do this work. So we have, we have just opened up this massive, massive can of worms here. Also, another thing I read on Trump's tweet, right? Trump tweeted out today that because interest rates are so low that the federal government should now take advantage of this to do the infrastructure bill that he's always wanted to do, right? Ever since uh, he was campaigning, he's wanted to do infrastructure. But before it was a $1 trillion bill. Now he wants $2 trillion of infrastructure spending. I mean, borrowing and then spending. Why? Well, he says, well, because rates are so low. The only reason rates are so low is because the Fed is monetizing all this debt. If the Fed wasn't printing all this money, rates would have skyrocketed. I mean, they were starting to go up before they started doing the repos. That was even before the coronavirus. But now, had it, if it wasn't for the Fed buying all these bonds, we wouldn't have the lowest interest rates ever. So what, what Trump is basically saying is, hey, as long as the Fed is printing up all this money, let's have them print up an extra $2 trillion so we can go and, and, and rebuild our infrastructure. I mean, so is all that inflation going to be worth it? I mean, first of all, I want to clear up this myth, and I know I've talked about it before on my podcast, but- Infrastructure spending isn't a stimulus. It is a burden in the short run, right? It's only a stimulus in the long term, right? What makes infrastructure good for the economy is if you fix up your infrastructure and if it makes the economy uh, more productive, great. Let's take an example of a bridge, right? Let's say that there's, uh, you know, uh, trucking routes where uh, goods are transported between two points. And let's say it takes four hours to transport by truck. And you know, it takes the gasoline or whatever to, to fuel the truck. But what if they build a bridge that can shorten that distance from four hours to two hours? Because now there's a bridge, right? So they can have a more direct path, right? So you can save two hours of commute time and you can save, you know, some of the extra wear and tear on the truck. You could save some of the energy cost. So does it make sense to invest in the new infrastructure, the building of a bridge, right, in order to Knock off two hours of commute time. Well, you can do a cost benefit analysis. You can find out how much money you will save in resources with the shorter uh, trip versus how much does it cost to build the bridge in in way of resources, right? Materials and labor. And you could do a cost benefit analysis and you could determine a payback period. So let's say whatever it costs, let's say it costs $5 million to build this bridge. And over the next six years, we save $5 million in costs by having a shorter trip. Then the payback period on the investment is six years. And you could say, hey, that's a good investment. And six years from now, we're going to reap the rewards of the sacrifice we make now. Because you have to pay the cost. You have to bear that burden. You have to free up those resources from something else that was maybe providing something more instant as far as you know gratification. right? Instead of producing things for current consumption. We're diverting those resources. We're building a bridge that's going to lead to a long-term improvement in our productivity. And so it will provide a net stimulus to the economy in six years, right? So it doesn't provide the stimulus now. It's, it's in the future. But of course, let's say you build a bridge to nowhere, which is the proverbial uh, pork barrel spending. When you have government uh, infrastructure, you build a bridge that goes nowhere. Well, then it doesn't improve your productivity at all. It doesn't do anything. And so you're just wasting money. There's no economic stimulus at all. It's a complete sedative. And that's what happens when you have the free market uh, investing in infrastructure. It's infrastructure that improves our lives because otherwise they wouldn't make the investment. If they couldn't have a return on the investment, the private sector wouldn't fund it. But what happens with government is it's all about, hey, I'm a congressman and I want to give out money to my constituents. I got I want to you know, it's a bunch of free money. I can create some jobs. Right? They don't give a damn if the infrastructure improves our lives. No, they just want to get votes. They want to use the infrastructure spending money to buy votes and you know thank the people that, that that helped get them elected. So that's all this is going to be. It's going to be a $2 trillion boondoggle. It's not going to create any economic stimulus. It's just going to add to the economic pain. You know, the irony of it is, right? Here we are. We've been hit by an unexpected catastrophe. Right. The government is bailing out everybody, right? They're bailing out all the private citizens. They're bailing out all the corporations, right? We're, we're, we're going broke, right? We're spending and printing all this money. And Trump says, hey, let's do infrastructure now. This is the perfect time. The perfect time. This is the worst time. I mean, it, we couldn't afford it before. We really can't afford it. You know, it's like and a good analogy would be, so let's say a guy loses his job, right? Just got fired from his job. And now he's lost his income. And, and so he's starting to, you know, live on credit cards and, you know, he's you know, barely making ends meet. And then he says, wait a minute. You know, I've always wanted to put in a swimming pool. This is a perfect time as long as I'm borrowing money anyway. Why don't I just take out a second mortgage and put in a swimming pool? Right. I mean, would anybody who just lost their job think, yes, now it's the time to put in a swimming pool? That's infrastructure. That's improving the infrastructure of your house. Now, that's not when you do it. You don't make those type of investments when you're broke and desperate for money. You have to wait till you're flush. You have to wait till you have more resources. I mean, the idea that now is the time to do infrastructure, it shows you I mean how little uh, a sense of reality Donald Trump actually has to think that everything is free. That that stuff comes from 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 heaven. That we don't have to work, that just money is just free. Look, if the Federal Reserve could just print up trillions and trillions of dollars and we could have everything we want, Why did we wait for this crisis? Why do we need the coronavirus? Just do it all the time. I mean, the reason we don't do it all the time is because it doesn't work. You know, the most expensive way to pay for government is through inflation. People are going to find that out. Paying for infrastructure, paying for bailouts and stimulus with a printing press is going to cost every American more than had we paid for it the honest way. Of course, had we had to pay for it the honest way with tax increases, we wouldn't have it because the public wouldn't stand for it. They don't want to pay the bill. It's only because they think it's free that they want it, right? Who doesn't want stuff that's free? But when the cost of living is spiraling out of control, right, you're going to know who to blame. Of course, the the politicians are going to blame the greedy businessman, price gougers, uh, speculators, you name it. They're never going to accept responsibility for the inflation horror that they will have unleashed on this nation. Another thing I wanted to point out, too, I saw a couple stories about companies like Under Armour and uh, I forget some of the others, clothing, uh, garment companies. Um, that we're now are retooling and they're making masks, right? Surgical masks that we can wear around uh to protect ourselves and others from the coronavirus. Apparently, I think the best use of a mask is to keep you from touching your face because you, when you if you handle things that maybe have the virus and then you touch your face, then that's how you get it. But if you have a mask here, then you'll touch the mask instead of your face. And I guess that will reduce the uh the transmission of the, the virus. But what people have to understand is maybe this is the right thing to do. I mean, we need more masks. And so companies are gearing up to make more masks. But to the extent that these companies are producing more masks, they are producing fewer clothing articles, right? So if Under Armour is making masks, they're not making as many T-shirts or socks or underpants or whatever they're making, right? And so the supply of that stuff is going to go down. And so the price of that stuff is going to go up. I mean, there's so much inflationary pressure building up from higher wage costs for the people who are still employed to less production from everybody, uh, uh, whether it's because they transitioned from making stuff that we want to, to masks. I mean, yeah, we might need them. Most people would rather wear new clothes instead of a mask, but you know, we're gonna have to wear masks. But all of this is a reduction in our standard of living and an increase in the cost of living. Oh, one of the things I I, I also wanted to talk about, I didn't put it on my list, but I read that Stephen Mnuchin, had said something about the fact that he's almost in constant contact uh, with Powell. Like he talks to him 30 times a day or something like that. These guys shouldn't be talking at all. I mean, I do not like the Federal Reserve coordinating with the federal government. They're supposed to be independent. And the reason they're supposed to be independent is because the Federal Reserve is supposed to be a check on the government. And you know, I mean, there's a reason that there's a Federal Reserve and that They didn't just give the federal government the power to print money. I mean, first of all, the Constitution denied them that power, which is one of the reasons they had to do it with the Fed, because constitutionally, they would have needed an amendment for the federal government to just print the money directly. Although right now, no one gives a damn about the Constitution, so I'm sure they can get away with it. But the reason for the independence was that they didn't want uh, the Fed to also have its hands on the printing press because they didn't want politicians to control the printing press, because they didn't want politicians buying votes by creating inflation, which is exactly what they're doing now. But when you have the Treasury Department working hand in glove with the Fed, the Federal Reserve is de facto an agency of the federal government, which is not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be private. It's supposed to be independent. right? And, and it's supposed to prevent exactly what's going on right now. So all this nonsense about Fed independence. Oh, we can't violate, you know, when people were criticizing Donald Trump because uh, he was criticizing the Federal Reserve. Well, he doesn't have to criticize the Federal Reserve anymore. He is the Federal Reserve. In fact, Donald Trump is not only the president of the United States, but he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, right? Uh, Powell, you know, he's just a figurehead. He's now just a puppet. Donald Trump is pulling all the strings. Anyway, that's it for now. Take care, everybody.